Hello, Internet, and welcome to the Sky Simplified podcast, exploring astronomy through a different perspective, one episode at a time. My name is Pranet Sharma, and I am a high school senior, as well as an absolute lover of everything astronomy. Today's episode is our first ever double guest feature. With me today, I have Dr. Thad Leister, a chemical engineer working in the industry, and Dr. John Zeno, a nuclear engineer who teaches at NC State University and works in the industry. Today's episode is all about exploring astronomy through the eyes of both chemical and nuclear engineering. If this is your first time here, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate us. The best thing you can do for this podcast is to share it around, so please let your family, friends, postman, neighbors, grocer, plumber, teacher, professor, anyone who you talk to know about this podcast. Now that we've gotten all of that out of the way, it's time to begin, so sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. Okay, let's get started on today's topic, exploring astronomy through the eyes of a chemical and nuclear engineering. Dr. Lester, who is a chemical engineer, and Dr. Zeno, who is a nuclear engineer, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, yeah. We're glad to have you on. Uh, Let's take a minute and please share with the listeners your journey through chemical and nuclear engineering and how that may intersect with astronomy or how your interests developed. I'll go first. This is uh, Fad Leister. Um, So I'm the chemical engineer of the two people here, and I uh, have always enjoyed space and space travel. So I kind of think of uh, intersection liberally there. And, and certainly, um, both Dr. Zeno and myself work in the nuclear field, um, and we, we have some intersections there we're looking forward to talking about today. So that's who I am. Dr. Zeno? Hey, good afternoon. Um, so yeah, John Zeno, um, you know, as Thad said, I've, uh, my background's in nuclear engineering. I've worked in the nuclear industry for 36 years, um, worked in a number of different capacities for the uh, Department of Defense, uh, Department of Energy for a number of years, and now with a private company for the last 23 years um, in the nuclear commercial power industry. Um, so been around a fair amount of time and uh, you know, really looking forward to discussing some of the things about nuclear and how they uh, intersect with other fields and other disciplines. That's so awesome. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Leister and Dr. Zeno. I'm really excited to discuss your perspective. You know, through your background in chemical and nuclear engineering, people usually separate them as fields of science or physics. But I'm sure as you've explored in your experiences so far, a lot of the foundational material is interlinked a lot more than one might expect. So to kind of discuss this, um, I have created a series of questions about your journey through nuclear and, and chemical engineering and the overlap between the two and astronomy. So let's begin. Uh, So first off, can you introduce the concept of nuclear engineering to listeners who may not be familiar with the field? Uh, What are some places in everyday life where listeners might see nuclear engineering or where it may be apparent? Okay, um, I I can take that one. Um, So I think that uh, nuclear engineers um, and, and the field of nuclear engineering show up in a number of different places um, in society, I think the, maybe the, the most popularly recognized one would be obviously nuclear power, electric generation from nuclear power. Um, maybe one that's not as uh, 
uh, well recognized or thought of these days would be the weapons field or the military field. But uh, we do have uh, nuclear applications with the Defense Department and in military applications. Um, but then there's also a number of fields that most folks might not think about or at least make the connection with, and that's um, fields such as nuclear medicine or radiation therapy, um, which are, are, are in fields that are a, a sort of a derivative of nuclear engineering um, in uh, medical or radiation health physics, um, where you have medical diagnostic or medical therapies uh, that employ nuclear or radiation sources, either internal to the body or external to the body. Um, and so those are some very uh, predominant fields. In fact, my, uh, my master's degree is actually in, in radiological or, or health, medical health physics. So I've actually worked a little bit in that field as well yeah. uh, for, um, for those types of applications. Um, and then there are a number of other places um, where nuclear uh, shows up again, maybe not as familiar to everybody, but um, for um, applications with uh, oil well logging, uh, drilling expeditions. Um, there are a number of engineering applications of radioisotopes and radioactive materials for measurements and diagnostic purposes um, in manufacturing, uh, food irradiation uh, to preserve it for long-term use. Um, so there really are a number of just, I think, some really fascinating uh, areas that, that nuclear can can show up in. It's uh, probably a little more broad than most people, you know, might realize, you know, at first blush. Definitely. Um, and I think especially the, the topic of medicine is something that people don't realize, you know, instantly. But anytime, I suppose, you know, oncology would have a lot of radiation based treatments. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. The treatment of thera therapies for tumors, cancerous tumors, uh, both from a diagnostic and a therapeutic perspective, nuclear plays a very big role. So X-rays, CT scans, um, right. what's called Baraki therapy, close therapy, where they put radioactive seeds and inject it into the body to have targeted dose to a, a cancerous tumor, or teletherapy, where they have an external radiation beam that's that's uh, trying to kill a, t a cancerous tumor. So yeah, very very widely used in the medical field. Um, so uh, a lot of good a lot of good applications there. Certainly, yeah, it's really cool, um, and. Uh, kind of to, to, to jump off of that, can you introduce chemical engineering, uh, Dr. Leicester, to people who may not sure. be aware of that? I'd be happy to. You know, uh, chemical engineering, uh, traditionally a chemical engineer might go to work for a materials type industry like plastics or something similar or more commodities like oil and gas kind of industries is a big employer of chemical engineers. Yeah. But I can tell you as... For like many engineers, uh, any many specific degrees in engineering, and engineering is just a great degree to have for multiple careers. And I personally have worked in the aviation field, nuclear power, gas power, and plastics industries. And it, it basically, the chemical engineering degree, like many engineering degrees, help you learn to think and be successful in those in those arenas. So. Chemical engineers are everywhere. That's what I'd say. Yeah, that's really cool. And especially, you know, chemistry is, is one of those sciences that almost every day usage, you'll see it in, in almost any context. So I think, like, this is definitely work that people are going to have interacted with in the past. Um, so kind of moving on to the next question, uh, nuclear science and astronomy share a lot of the same roots. Uh, so Dr. Zeno, what are some examples of this, in your opinion? 
Um, yeah, I would say there's a couple. Um, I think maybe um, if you look at it from the standpoint of a, a timeline, um, I think when you look at nuclear science and astronomy, um, you see that uh, many of the early discoveries um, about the cosmos and the origins of the cosmos um, really originated um, from studies that were done at the turn of the 20th century by some uh, many physicists and mathematicians who were very well known in the nuclear industry, such as Albert Einstein, yeah. uh, with his general and special relativity, um, which, which really led the way for discoveries in astronomy that led uh, science to change their view very dramatically on the uh, origins and the age of the universe. Uh, prior to um, prior to the really the start of the 20th century, it had been a long held view that the universe was eternal and steady state and had always existed. Um, but in the last hundred or so years, 120 years, um, many of those views have now changed with uh, discoveries from astronomy um, that were prompted by uh, people that worked in the fields of uh, what would become nuclear science and technology um, uh, th as we see today. I would say that that's maybe a little historical walk. The other area I would say is that a lot of the uh, <clears throat> deep space probes that we've put out there, the Cassini um, and, and such that are out there uh, traveling through the solar system, um, are, do use radioisotope sources, nuclear sources like plutonium-238, um, radioisotope generator sources that power these uh, long deep space probes that go uh, out to the outer edges of the solar system. Um, and give us sending back tremendous information about you know our, the galaxy, our solar system, and solar systems around us. And so, um, you know, I think there are certainly some areas of overlap, whether it's historical or current day, um, that uh, you find in both in both of these fields. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think a lot of the science that that fuels them is the same, and we can discuss this later as well. But for example, the process that drives stars is an inherently nuclear process. And nuclear yep. science is really instrumental to understanding how stars work, including our sun. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely correct. In fact, we're trying to re we've been trying to recreate that in the lab for yeah. the better part of half a century now, maybe longer, with uh, fusion reactor oh, yeah. technology. Um, there have actually been some pretty interesting developments in the last few years um, in China and the U.S. Uh, reaching the break-even point for fusion and then being able to sustain. A thermonuclear reaction um uh, it's, it's really fascinating but yeah the, the the power that energy and the process the power of the stars um is all fundamentally a thermonuclear process right so uh yeah, yeah. absolutely that's that's a very important part yeah certainly and i think it's just so exciting to look to the future that maybe one day we'll be able to harness nuclear fusion which would truly be the next big breakthrough in energy which is just so crazy to think about yeah yeah, yeah it really is so kind of to move towards chemical engineering in general, um, how do you think, uh, Dr. Leister, the study of astronomy has shaped chemical or nuclear engineering over time as a field? Yeah, I, I think when you go back to uh, early science developments and you think about people looking to the skies to see and study the, the, uh, the planets and the stars, you know, they didn't have sophisticated instruments, but yet they see different colors that are really the elemental composition of different things or uh, cosmic dust causing uh, light scattering. And I think that uh, 
that's where chemistry and elements kind of come together, if you will, in the sense of um, how uh, early studies uh, kind of combined with chemistry and chemical engineering to determine what are those planets. And even as we kind of look forward, there's there's initiatives out there to you know mine asteroids or um, explore planets for other materials of interest. So that's a, a material side of, of chemistry and chemical engineering. Um, Certainly. So, so I think there's lots of relationships there. And yeah, uh, listeners, we've talked about asteroid mining in previous episodes. And really, it's, it's a very interdisciplinary action that would occur. Um, I think it would really combine a lot of fields efforts. And, you know, even considering from a philosophical or ethical perspective, we may need to discuss about whether that is the right step forward. Is it is it right to push these sciences to these limits, not knowing what we might get ourselves into? Yeah, yeah so. Pranet, I, I, I just to add to that, I, mm-hmm. I definitely think there's an ethical uh, dialogue that needs to take place before we exploit uh, planets or asteroids for for material value. Yeah, and so that's a great podcast discussion if you haven't hit that. Yeah. Uh, as to is that the right thing to do? Yeah. Um, and, and and does it advance humankind or is that exploitation? Exactly. So great, yeah. Great philosophical discussion. It is. It is a really th- interesting thing to consider. And listeners, I encourage you to listen to the first episode of this podcast recorded with Dr. Cullison of of DePaul University. Uh, now he's moved to Ohio State, but Dr. Cullison, who is who specializes in ethics and philosophy. Yeah, certainly. Um, and I think that, you know, when we move into the future, this ethical conversation is really going to need to be instilled within the science and chemical engineers and astronomers and nuclear engineers. We're all going to have to grapple with these questions of how far our science is reaching and whether it is worth reaching that far, as you mentioned. Yeah, certainly. So moving on to the next question, um, this is more directed to Dr. Zeno. Uh, have any discoveries in the universe made breakthroughs in nuclear engineering. So kind of going backwards, has his astronomy kind of influenced the field of nuclear engineering and has that kind of improved technology within the field? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. You know, the, the field of astronomy has been around a very, very long time, uh, right? Obviously going back, you know, uh, you know, Copernicus and even, you know, farther beyond that um, with, uh, with you know, ancient discoveries, you know, uh, with people looking at the stars long before nuclear was a field, right? Long before we even realized there was a subatomic realm. Yeah, um, but I would say that um, in terms of the fields inter, you know, sort of uh, interplay or overlap with one another, um, you know, I, I do think that um, understanding the nature of radiation and, and cosmic radiation has always been a fascinating thing. We, you know, we see the aurora borealis. Um, high energy charged particles trapped oh, in the magnetic poles of the earth. Yeah. And um, for, you know, people always wonder what, what were those things? And as, as it turns out, it's, it's high energy charged particles, um, which, you know, and, and, and the radiation emitted when they collide with one another. Um, and so I think the fields do have a lot of overlap in that sense when it comes to radiation detection and measurement, um, yeah. uh, either for, you know, e- either for, purposes of research or for you know purposes of use um i do think as i s- said earlier that I-, I do see a lot of potential for the fields to complement one another in the future as we look for deep space you know manned deep space exploration um i think nuclear has a lot to offer astronomy in terms of um 
doing what we're doing now with these unmanned probes, but sending uh, deep, you know, deep space or deep travel probes with with humans um, at some point. I think nuclear plays a strong role in that. So, um, yeah, I would say the relationship has has probably changed over time, uh, but but I think it's it's encouraging to see where it may go in the future. Definitely, and and I think that you know any time that you develop technology in general for the exploration of stuff on earth or in the universe you're gonna have impacts on other fields and that's one of the reasons that astronomy is so important that in our process of studying the universe we've developed so many new technologies that are now kind of as part of everyday life on earth like velcro for example was invented to allow astronomer astronauts to more easily kind of get on and take off their suits um you know where would we be without velcro today so yeah, um, and kind of what would you say is the most landmark intersection of nuclear science and astronomy? And this could be something that exists, you know, we touched on fusion uh, and thermonuclear reactions, or kind of a technique that's being developed now for the future. Yeah, I, I think I would say probably the ones that we've hit on, certainly the thermonuclear fusion uh, aspect of trying to control the fusion chain reaction uh, that basically trying to recreate what we see in the sun or you know in stars, uh, but in a controlled manner is uh, that that's certainly a tremendous uh, intersection of those two fields. Um, but I also would say maybe what I alluded to earlier with um, the discoveries of the age of the uh, universe um, and quantum field theory calculations by Albert Einstein. Um, that it's fascinating to think that you know um, a theory developed that was used in nuclear applications actually got its start um, with cosmic and astronomical predictions of the, of the age of the solar system. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, it's fascinating to see the overlap, the, the interplay of those two. Uh, one of the first applications of Einstein's general and special relativity was to, to, to look at the age of the, of the solar system. Um, but that went on to be the, sort of the hallmark of, uh, of the of a field that would emerge uh, 20 or 30 years later when they discovered fission um, when scientists discovered fission and and then ultimately you know fusion and recognize that we could harness the energy of these of these uh, processes that are all governed by those same set of, of equations and so uh, there, there's really a lot more in common there than most people might think Certainly, and I think it's just so cool um, especially you know thinking about Einstein all of his work was theoretical and all of it has been proven in an experimental context, which I think is just so wild. And, and this kind of cross-disciplinary impact that his work has had, as you mentioned, those same equations apply in so many fields of science. And I think that's really just a hallmark of what makes science so amazing, is that there's so much shared between them, and how breakthroughs in one field are always going to involve breakthroughs in another. And I think that's just a really cool testament to the collaborative and connected aspect of all science. And kind of, you know, along that vein, uh, this is more directed to you, Dr. Leister. Uh, what developments in chemical or nuclear engineering do you think would propel the study of astronomy? And what developments in chemical engineering are you the most excited about looking to the future? I'm going to direct my answer towards uh, nuclear this time, even though I'm the chemical engineer. And, Perfect. You know, I, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I'm really into space travel um, as a uh, interest in, in this field. And there's some really neat things on the horizon from a technology standpoint that are being looked at. And when you think about a manned mission to, let's say, Mars, you got a couple things you got to really overcome. And I, I looked it up on 
the world's resource of Google today, and they're saying it's a seven-month travel uh, to get from here to there by the technologies we're usually using at this point. And when you travel that length of time through space, you have a a hazard, and that hazard is radiation. Of course, coming from the sun and and through space, you would receive a, a lethal dose of radiation getting to Mars right now. So you have to overcome that to be able to travel in space. Uh, So that cosmic radiation is a major hazard. Um, So one solution is how do you change the game from a propulsion standpoint? Can you use uh, nuclear power to get a spaceship quicker to a Martian surface or whatnot? And so there's some technology, and I'll ask Dr. Zeno to talk about those technologies in a little detail in a minute that several companies are working on, several companies that people would know, but I'm not going to name. Um, and then the other thing is when you land on the moon or, or Mars's surface and you want to stay there for a while, how are you going to power that base? And, and if you think about it, like on the moon, there's no wind, so you can't have wind power. There's no oxygen, so you can't really effectively do a combustion burn without bringing in some some fuel of some sort yeah. and oxygen. Um, and so really nuclear is the option. And, and there's a lot of developments on uh, surface power, we call it, of applications that are being developed. Uh, so we can have lunar and Martian bases. Um, so we're, we're looking at nuclear technologies to get there quicker and to stay there longer, right? So right. Dr. Zeno, you want to maybe comment specifically on some of the the intricacies of the technologies that are being looked at? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you, you really covered it pretty well. I mean, it's uh, uh, one of the applications is, as you said, th- propulsion, nuclear thermal propulsion, um, where you would have a, a, a rather large, um, I say rather large, compared to most power plants, it would be small, but uh, a, a powerful compact reactor, nuclear reactor that, that could be used to... Um, basically like a jet engine um, except because you're in outer space there's no oxygen so uh, you have compressed uh, you would have other gases that are compressed heated and then uh, by the re- the nuclear reactor and then exhausted through expanded out through a, a nozzle an exhaust nozzle that would provide propulsion thrust yeah. um, that's how a jet engine works right it takes in air compresses it heats it and expands it but you can't do that in space because there's no air. So you've got to do it with another gas, usually right. a light element like you know hydrogen or maybe helium. Um, and that would provide significant thermal propulsion thrust, to, as you say, to get to a, a Martian surface base uh, in considerably less time. Um, and then you're right. And then when you're there, what do you do when you're actually on the surface? You would need a considerably smaller but yet no less powerful source of nuclear power that... Um, could run for years and years without needing to be refueled um, because right. you just can't conveniently ship fuel, you know, all the way to Mars. So you'd need something that is self-contained, very low maintenance, and then that just runs and generates electric power for years and years without needing to be refueled or maintained. Um, and again, for those applications, nuclear really is one of the only viable options. Uh, it doesn't need any oxygen for combustion. It doesn't need sun. It doesn't need wind. Um, because none of these things are available in deep space or on, on you know, surface of 
different planets. Um, so it really does give you uh, a lot of advantages there. I see nuclear in this next phase of scientific exploration being to, to space exploration, what it was to uh, naval uh, submarine propulsion in the 1950s. Right. Uh, submarines were very, very limited because uh, they had diesel generators and they had to run their, you know, to charge their diesel. Uh, the diesel engines would run during the day when they could be on the surface. Uh, I'm sorry, at night when they could be on the surface so nobody could see them because they needed oxygen. Then they would run on batteries, um, you know, during the day. Um, and it was very, very limiting. And nuclear really opened up, you know, a tremendous opportunity for sub nuclear submarines because they could run 24-7 underwater and, and be undetected uh, to a large yeah. degree. So I, I see nuclear being a game changer for space, much the way it was for the Navy um, in the nineteen in the, you know, the mid-1950s. Right. And Pernet, if, if I could make one last comment. Um, of course. So, so I would encourage your listeners to do a little research on both the the surface reactors and also the propulsion reactors. There's a lot of stuff on the internet if people want to learn more about this. And you can see the the familiar names in both the space industry and the nuclear industry who are participating in these things and some, some fascinating reading if somebody would like to look a little deeper. Definitely. And I yeah. think that is, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just, I'll just throw in one quick thing that, and, and these are programs are being funded by NASA. I yeah, mean, they are. That's, I mean, this this is at the highest level of the U.S. government's interest. Um, and NASA is funding programs like industry uh, to pursue this, both both for propulsion and surface power. Certainly, and you know that's just so cool to think about. Uh, just just listeners, uh, I encourage you to look at what nuclear submarines are, and how nuclear power really just revolutionized the way naval uh, activities were conducted on a military level. And just thinking, Dr. Zeno, as you mentioned, that it may have that sort of an impact on space travel is just so, so exciting. And I can't wait to see how this frontier expands. Yeah, um, this has been a delightful conversation. And to kind of wrap things up, is there any advice for the students, astronomers, nuclear scientists, or chemical engineers who may be listening that y'all have? Yeah, I'll go first. And my advice is really to the students. Um, and my, my advice is think about your education Think about both having a broad liberal education as well as maybe a targeted specific education like chemical engineering. And you, Pranet, had said the intersection of multiple disciplines is really, really a neat thing. And I'm a big believer in that. Yeah. So as you're choosing your college major or thinking about continuous learning, think about how you might learn about different things and figure out how you might tie them together. So I have three degrees and they're all very disparate from each other. Chemical engineering is my undergraduate degree. I have a doctorate in education. I have a master's in business. And I purposely and intentionally chose three different fields to combine. And, and I try to look at those intersections of how I might apply each of those disciplines to make me a better and, and uh, more educated person so I can uh, you know, uh, be more effective in life. And I would encourage uh, that any student can think about how they can take multiple interests and combine them as you think about your education. So that's my, my advice. So, John? Yeah, I'm not sure I can improve on that. That's pretty much exactly what I would say and what I, I do say to a lot of my students is, um, you know, obviously you need to gain specialized knowledge in certain fields like astronomy or chemical engineering or nuclear um, in order to be successful in those careers. But 
it goes broader than that. And there, there needs to be a, a more, you need to have a more contextualized understanding of how what you're doing fits into the big picture. And I think classes and ideas, things like taking, let's say, coursework in philosophy or literature, um, although it might seem totally unrelated, actually is incredibly related to these fields. Um, when you look back at scientists throughout history, uh, Galileo, Kepler, Newton, Leibniz, they were all scientists and mathematicians, but they were also philosophers. They studied philosophy. Uh, they studied theology. They understood uh, the intersection of all these fields. They were much more interdisciplinary. Today, we are very, very uh, siloed in our fields because yeah. we have such a deep degree of specialization. Um, but I think it's important to be able to recognize that that uh, that these things are all, I think we said it earlier, these things are all interconnected in one way or another. And finding those connection points um, is, is really, a, it's a journey unto itself. And it's, I think it's really the goal of education is to, is to figure that out. And so I, I would agree with you, Thad. I think that's probably the best advice I could, I could give students as well. Right, and it applies to those who are already graduated and they're continuous learning moving forward. So it's really applicable to all the groups you named, Burnett. Certainly. And, you know, you never stop learning. Interdisciplinarity really is the name of the game and anybody can bring it into their lives at any point. And I'm sure listeners, no matter what you're doing, you're going to be discussing other fields and, and other topics within your work. And really, that's what the future is all about, you know, just combining these disparate yet so familiar and so common fields into something that is more than the sum of its parts, something that is beautiful, something that really propels our species into the future. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Leister and Dr. Zeno, for coming on the show. No, thank you. Very happy. Yeah, very happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thank thank you. you. I hope you listeners are a little bit more enlightened. I know I sure am. Um, is there anything that you'd like to plug, such as social media or websites that you enjoy? Well, neither Dr. Zeno nor myself are big social media guys, but <laughs> I guess I'd just say keep learning. Keep learning interdisciplinary as well as specific things you're interested in. That's my plug. Yeah, I would, I would agree. Oh, good advice. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for coming on again. Uh, listeners, if you have any questions, make sure to drop them off at skysimplified.com. And until next time, clear skies. The Sky Simplified podcast is created, hosted, edited, and produced by Pranet Sharma. The music is by Pranet Sharma. For questions about the show, go to www.skysimplified.com. As always, thank you for listening and clear skies.